0: Why are we doing four sets of six back squat and then we're going to go on and do three sets of eight reverse lunge and then three sets of eight RDL and then three sets of eight step ups? You know what I mean? These secondary exercises, the stimulus isn't even close to what you just did back squatting. Yeah. You're just creating more fatigue and more fatigue and more fatigue that is going to inhibit their ability to perform whatever sport they're playing.
1: That was Will Rattel, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Lost Empire Herbs. You can get 15% off my favorite herbs for well being and athletic performance by heading to Just justfly. About three years ago, I got into herbalism after having Logan Christopher on the podcast. Starting with the Phoenix formula, which literally had my body buzzing after I took it. Not in a jittery way, like coffee, but in a way where I really felt the herbs working with my body. Within two weeks, I was already noticeably stronger in the weight room. And ever since, I've made herbalism a regular part of my training regimen. I've totally ditched any sort of caffeine-laden pre-workout. And I really enjoy using supplements that come directly from the earth. Lost Empire Herbs was started by Logan Christopher and his two brothers to help bring back the lost empire of nature and our connection to it and to bring the power of herbs to the general public again if you want to see my favorite herbs such as Shilijit, which has been mentioned by other podcast guests on this show phoenix formula and more as well as get 15% off your purchase alongside a 365 day money back guarantee head to lostempireherbs.com/justfly welcome to another episode thanks for being here in the supportive role of physical preparation, it can be very easy to partition that process away from the actual needs, demand, and skill acquisition of explosive, chaotic sports, and and then movements within that sport. Today's episode features Will Rattel. Will's athletic background, his love for sport and play, along with his raw horsepower and athletic ability, is a unique combination. He is a strength coach at the University of North Dakota, and he's also the owner of W2 Performance. Prior to working in the sports performance field, Will spent time as a professional football player with the Atlanta Falcons, the Kansas City Chiefs, and the Saskatchewan Roughriders. On the show today, Will will talk about his athletic background, his gameplay that has served him throughout youth, and then still today as a strength coach. And he'll talk about how, despite being more than physically capable, he didn't actually make it far in the pro level of football. Will will then go into ideas on what we should be looking to improve or intensify in the gym training setting for athletics and athletic performance. Will will chat about how to avoid training or excessively training things that don't really matter in the grand scheme of everything an athlete is asked to do in their athletic regimen. Will will finish with his thoughts on the specificity of potentiation. He'll talk about jump and sprint variability training. And we'll finish the show with Will's take on the debate between Olympic lifts and loaded jumps, and he'll give his thoughts on that topic. This was a great show just to really key in on that true specificity and training what matters in athletic performance. Let's get on to episode 308 with Will Rattel. All right, Will, welcome to the show, man. All right, so I got an intro question, a little bit different in your experience How many is the optimal amount of bang energy drinks that the average strength coach should consume each day? Like kind of a range, what's high end, low end? What are we talking about here?
0: Uh, The most, so the most I'll do in a day and it really depends on the day. I'll do four in a day if I really want to. Um, Kind of depends on what time I start and what what I got going throughout the day. But yeah, one or two should be good. Yeah. If you have a Miami Cola and a root beer Blaze, that should
1: get you through the day. (laughs) Is that how is that stack up to coffee? Like just black coffee. Any opinions?
0: I, I don't drink coffee. I don't like coffee. I don't like it because I don't like the taste. Um so I don't drink coffee. I just yeah, I wake up if it's six in the morning, I'll grab a bang and maybe open it up right away, or maybe I'll wait till like nine or ten in the morning.
1: So yeah, that's that's the way I do it. That's hilarious. Yeah, I have a I'm sitting here with an espresso, it's probably about the farthest you can get from a bang energy drink. Maybe we should be talking to, right next now. to me too. Yeah, I got
0: my root beer blaze here.
1: That's awesome. Um, anyways, so, you know, I, I don't do this as much as I used to, but tell me a little bit about your background and more so in the, the world of, of your background as an athlete, with uh, where you were in sport and, and your physical abilities, like relative to the people you were training and competing with. And then a little bit about that.
0: I'll just I'll briefly talk about like my childhood and my upbringing. So I played like any, every sport growing up snowboarded, tennis, soccer, hockey football, basketball, baseball, lacrosse. And then obviously, as you get older, you kind of have to weed out the sports that aren't going to work with whatever you're doing in high school because you only have a finite amount of time and resources. Eventually, I only played football and baseball in high school. So I quit basketball after my, I think after my sophomore year. Maybe it was after my freshman year. I don't remember, I guess. So then I focused on football and baseball my senior year, went to college at UND, played football there. Then I spent a little bit of time as a player in and out of the NFL and CFL um, with the Falcons, the Chiefs, and the Saskatchewan R- Rough Riders. Um, so that was a really short-lived career. And then now, I guess my athletic background is just working out, training. Um, I play a lot of basketball. I play some volleyball, um, and I play a little bit of, I guess, just like recreational sports: racquetball, tennis. Play a lot of spike ball if I can find people to play spike ball with. Every once in a while, I'll play some. You know, like adult men's uh, softball. So that's my background now. Does that answer your question? I don't know if those.
1: Yeah, for sure. The right answer. Okay. <laughs> yeah. no, never really. I don't think there's ever really the right or wrong answer. I. Um, but I was. I'm curious. So I was going to ask you a different follow up, but it's interesting. Like I think that the world of training and the world of play are often really compartmentalized. Especially. I mean, uh, even in the world of like fitness personal training, strength and conditioning, a lot of times, it's just always more, I think, about, like, if people have free time, it's usually like, well, let, let me get a good workout in. But you don't oftentimes see, hey, we have free time, extra free time, let's go play, like, let's go play spike ball, you know, let's go play some pickup volleyball or something like that. I I mean, do you, is that something that's really grown on you through your experience in, you know, strength and conditioning, physical prep, or do you feel like that's always been, like, part of part of what you, I mean, you obviously made to, like a semi-pro level of, of sport there? Or do you feel like that's something that's always been with you?
0: Yeah, it's a really hard question to answer. So I've always been really active. My parents are very active people. So I've always, like, I've always used a lot of my free time to participate in physical activity in some form, whether it's just like riding a bike or playing, playing some sort of game like spike ball or like uh, growing up, my brother and I would play like home run derbies with wiffle balls in the backyard. So that's always kind of been something that I do it is really difficult to get some 29 now. It's really difficult to get people who are my peers, like on a Saturday afternoon to go play racquetball or Mm -hmm. go play pickleball or something like that. I don't know why that is, but yeah, it is really really (laughs) difficult to get a lot of people to do that, which I think is really interesting because when you do get a group of people to go play a game like that, they always will say, Oh, we should do this more often. Yes, You know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, So I don't know why, I really don't understand why it is why it's not as popular as it is. Fortunately for me, I've been in Grand Forks now for like 10 years, so I've I've been able to de- develop some friendships with people who are pretty available to do that stuff on weekends. So I guess it's not as difficult anymore, but it is hard to get like new people to join. Like I go play play a lot of pickup basketball on Saturday afternoons and it's it's always easy to find three or four guys to go play twos with or to go play 21 with it's not that hard for me to do anymore but yeah i think yeah yeah that's my answer yeah yeah It, it is difficult for a lot of people to like actually step out of their comfort zone and go go play some sort of recreational sport
1: yeah and that's why that's why i wanted to ask because in my experience i think it would be more common if you had like you and your peer group in a like a fitness strength and conditioning based setting had a few extra minutes you might say hey you want to go do some arms you know (laughs) and right but it's like what you said when you finally go play everyone's like oh we should do this more often i mean heck even when you know in in the past like when i was at cal i would like for example go out to the track and just even just not even play necessarily but i would go with like the basketball strength coach out to the track and we'd do like some crawls and sprints and stuff maybe put some hurdles out and run over a few hurdles and you know, it was always like, oh, this is so awesome. I should get outside in the sun and do this more often. This feels so good, you know? And it is it is very interesting to me. I That's why I'm always just kind of thinking like, why don't we play more? I mean, even myself, I'm fairly regularly like browsing the internet for like local, like a chance to get in like a local like pickup game or sports leagues. Actually, ever since I moved to Cincinnati, I haven't really found anything. And I'm always I'm always realizing how much I need to do that. Not just for even like just the mental and emotional well-being of playing instead of always training. But it actually it makes my training better, and that's something that I've learned. Like every year, I would say for the last ten years, I learned that a little bit more in the sense of, like, okay, if being around people and playing a game, and I can jump four inches higher when I'm doing that, wouldn't I want to do that more often? You know, like it, it does it just makes sense. So, anyways, I I just I'm always thinking about that myself. So I, I, I that's why I asked you. I was curious what, and maybe it's just try just being intentional and making the time to do it. I, I think that. In the world of fitness in general, I think it's more viewed it as suffering. Again, some I think there should be a hard component occasionally, but it shouldn't revolve around that. At least not entirely. And it's almost like it almost like it goes against a little bit of the ethos of like, well, we really need to suffer. Like, unless you really want to suffer and do that every day, then you're not really training. And playing is like what people would view as the opposite of suffering. <laughs> Anyways, I don't want to get too philosophical with it, but I do think about that. And so I was just interested with your backgrounder anything with you? Yeah. That, do you enjoy playing? Well,
0: it is. It, a lot of times it is going to be a better training effect for a lot of people than going into the gym and lifting weights for an hour. I think especially, so I was talking to my, my parents about this over a year ago uh, when I was down there for the 4th of July, we actually, they still played, they're 60 years old. They still play tennis and pickleball and golf and stuff like that. And I was talking to them like, don't you think it would probably be better for you to go, pl- like I, I played spike ball with them. I introduced them to spike ball, and it was tough for them to like read, read when the ball is going to hit the net and bounce off, and how it's going to bounce off and all that stuff. Um, but they were like diving for balls and stuff and rolling, <laughs> rolling on the <laughs> ground. Um, so it was, it, they found it fun. So I was talking to them, like, don't you think this would be a better use of your training time instead of going to the gym to lift two to three times a week or to do your elliptical two to three times a week to go play a sport like this because when you're 80, 85, 90 years old and it's hard for you to get out of a chair, the training effect that spike ball or something like that's gonna have on you diving, falling, hitting the ground, and getting back up as fast as possible. Like that's gonna just have a better training effect for you as you age than getting on an elliptical and oh, you know, yeah, doing your elliptical for 30 minutes at heart rate of 65% of your heart rate max, you know? Yeah. Um, and they I mean they agreed with it. So like it's just it's funny to me how that is not as popular like we said earlier it's not as popular as it could be
1: yeah uh, yeah speaking of pickleball i remember when i was in berkeley like i would but my last year there there were always these there were always these uh elderly women who would come out and play pickleball like i think it was it might have been maybe it was a, when covid hit too we were just like going for you know we were just kind of going for walks with the kids and stuff outside and i would see people playing or maybe it was before i don't remember exactly but it was towards my last year there um yeah i would see these older women playing pickleball and I'm like, this is, these women, they're going to live to be like 100. Like, they're just, they're they're so full of energy. They're they're like, and they're at, like, there's a lot of energy in the way they played. And yeah, versus, I mean, again, walking is great. Like, I I think that's awesome. But like, it's so much more alivening to have it be a game. And it's fun to having, I mean, I I see this myself. uh, And yeah, even with like the... You know, I talk about like this the suffering, it says like things should be like sport is hard. Like there's there's things in sport that are difficult and life is about finding ways to overcome difficulty. But what I find, um, at least a, a, an important part of life is, it's not the only thing in life, but I find in sport, like if I'm playing a sport or basketball or anything, like I feel it happening in my body that I'm working pretty hard and I'm actually, the adrenaline is causing me not to feel the fatigue as if I was... If I was just doing all this, like if I was just running around in all these patterns repeatedly at high intensity, I would be getting very tired much earlier. And I see that in my children too. Like my son in particular, he's three and my daughter's five. And my daughter's a little bit more like she might be a swimmer someday or a track type person. She she seems to have this ability to like just run or move continually and not, I guess, say she's not that I'm like having her like run a mile or something, but she doesn't complain about being tired if she's like running a lot. And whereas my son is a little bit different, but if it's a game, I'll try to, I kind of keep it in my mind, like, wow, he is running so much longer, like, when we play this game of tag, than if he was just, I don't know, running down the street with his sister or something and then decide, I'm tired, I'm going to stop. Like, he probably runs 10 times as far before it even registers in his head. (laughs) And when I was, and and I, I just, I think about that a lot, how our perception uh, if, if if fatigue isn't and, and the fact of like, well, I'm really not tired isn't hitting you mentally and you're still moving and enjoying it and have this energy and intention, the adaptations are just are really, really substantial. And it's funny, like I shouldn't even have to say this because most people who work with athletes, well, yeah, the athletes are already playing. So, they're already getting that, right? But I guess I just talk about it more in the sense of just, just keeping in mind that just play and intense play is a powerful adaptation. And the last thing I'll say too is I remember when I was... When I was in high school, I played basketball and then went and did track. And, and we didn't do a, a terrible amount of running for track. Nothing like when I got to college my first year. But I, I ran an okay 400-meter dash. I mean, 54, it was okay. It wasn't fast. Like, I wasn't blazing fast. But I got to college the next year and we ran traditionally a lot. And I didn't play very much. I was barely playing pickup sports. And I mean, I bet you my workload on the track and typical running like doubled, and the workouts were a lot harder than high school. And I, the first time they put me in the four by four, I ran fifty-seven, which is so bad. Like that's terrible. <laughs> and I don't. Know, I mean, I, I certainly would have ran faster later in my college career, but I always kept that in mind. Like wow, like playing a sport. There's just so many powerful adaptations that that really improve the whole system, and I just think we take it for granted. So sorry, that was a really long-winded response, and I'm. Trying, I should be asking you these questions. You just kind of set me off there on that.
0: Well, no, I I mean I I I totally agree with everything.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's why I think that's a commonality we have, and it's just when you play the games, you feel it, you see it. Okay, so the other thing that I wanted to ask you, Will, was I know that you had like a tremendous as a football player, like your physical ability, your strength, your speed was incredibly good. So with you having all that, maybe you can describe that a little bit, and then with all that, why why didn't you make the next level? Like why didn't you make the NFL? You know what I'm saying? Like tell me a little bit about that.
0: Yeah. I talked about this with Jake on his podcast a little bit. Yeah. Like the physical abilities were all there. Like if we go back to 2016 was the year that I was like in that draft, I didn't get drafted. I was signed undrafted, but like my, my combine numbers, like my vertical, my 40 yard dash, my, the L cone, the pro agility, the bench brace, the bench press. I think I was like top five in every category for my like class. So the physical capabilities were there, but I wasn't, honestly, I just wasn't that smart of a football player. I could get away with it in college. I played at an FCS level. So division one, double a, I probably could have gotten away with it at like the college or the FBS level, like a big 10 or something like that. But when I got to the higher levels when I got to the NFL and I changed positions, so I was a linebacker in college and I moved to fullback in the NFL. Um, so like the way the game is read, it's way different uh, when you change positions like that, but the point remains like I just wasn't there mentally I didn't know the playbook very well I wasn't very good at adjusting on the fly when things didn't go the way they were supposed to go and that's really what ultimately held me back I just so I was competing with a guy named Pat DeMarco for the fullback spot with Atlanta and I was bigger faster stronger more powerful like all the physical metrics were there um but he was way smarter he could He could read things quicker. He knew how to make adjustments on the fly. He could like in the backfield. He could see what the defense was going to do before I could see it, and he just he was better than me. So that that's really all it was. Um, I just didn't have like the cognitive ability, I guess, that would have been required for me to
1: play at that level. All right. So with that being said, so now you you're, you're 29. You've been doing the the coaching thing for a while and still playing. So if you were to go back and coach yourself, and let's see on two levels, you're coaching yourself in your and you are your own college strength coach. What is there anything that you can do? You think from that perspective that you think could change things or or make a positive or make a positive impact that hopefully could give you a better shot? And then the second version would be you are your own like youth sports you know facilitator. Like <laughs> what sports you're playing, how you go about them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And obviously the first the the youth sports one is probably going to be able to get you there a lot more, but I'm curious what you do in both settings. Like, if you're working with yourself, what's your perspective there?
0: Yeah, I don't know if I really would change a ton about the training that what I, that I would have done, um, and it all goes back to like what's the purpose of a strength conditioning coach. I'm sure like you've read Fergus Connolly's book, mm-hmm. The Game Changer, um, and he talks about the the four different quadrants. But if your job as a strength coach is to develop the physical quadrants, are you and like it depends on the, your relationship with the coaches, because they're in charge of the technical and tactical and all that stuff. I don't know if like from a physical standpoint I would have done anything that much differently. If anything, I probably would have wished I would have reduced the weight room amount of workload and just maybe increased more of like the plyos, the jumps, the sprints and all that kind of stuff. But the general perception action qualities that I had were right up there with anybody else i just didn't have the specific perception action Mm. abilities that makes sense um and then as a youth no i don't think i would have changed anything because like i said in the beginning i played so many different sports i was in so many different athletic environments and i think i developed a really good base to help to help me get to where i ended up getting to anyways so i don't know it really just goes back to like the question of what is the strength conditioning coach's role and if you do think the strength conditioning's Strength and conditioning staff or strength conditioning coach's role is more than develop the physical side. Um, Then I guess you could, you could make some more adjustments to what I did, Um, but I just don't know. Especially with the resources we had at Und, yeah, I don't know if I really
1: would have changed much. Got it? Yeah, no. Just curious with that. I mean, yeah, it does. What you said makes sense. It's depending on the because when I ask you that, like, I mean, it's a loaded question, right? If you're your college strength coach, honestly.
0: Honestly, I should have spent more time watching film, yeah, you know, and learning the playbook and the schemes and tendencies of opponents, because that's where I was, um, I was lagging behind stuff like that.
1: Yeah, just and then yeah, like it's a loaded question because to say well, is that the strength coach? It's not the strength coach in a college setting, at least. It's not the strength coach's mm-hmm. job to to be a part of that element of things. But it is interesting, you know. I was half expecting you to say, oh, well, I would have, you know, maybe played more of this sport or that sport when you grew up. But you were saying, like, you're saying it was where there's the tactical and technical, right? And it sounded like the technical was pretty good because you had played so many sports, you know, you knew what you were doing, but it was the tactical. It was the game-specific IQ. And so, yeah, that's right. Hard. It doesn't actually, I'm like, oh, shoot, well, that doesn't actually play into much of anything I was going to talk about with the games or, you know, what you could do, right? And, and that is just pure, it was actually very purely from the sport perspective of things. So, mm-hmm. yeah, interesting to, I mean, interesting to consider at least. Yeah. Okay, so... Yeah, I've, I know you've talked about this. So, let me ask you about this because I think this might play in, right? Especially when you have a really extensive experience like like playing and or even like, like dunking, for example. And when you spend a lot of time like dunking and practicing dunking, I think it changes your thoughts and opinion on plyometrics a little bit. And so, let me ask you with... Because I've heard you talk about this like gym metrics, like velocity, bar velocities and things you quantify in the gym to say that you're doing the job that you need to be doing or to ensure that an athlete is ad- adapting in the correct direction how have your thoughts changed or what are your thoughts on like the metrics and the things that you're in- choosing to intensify in the gym and i also i say intensify because i i do think that Putting a bar speed monitor in is is calling a little bit more intensity into the the gym piece, which is I think can be fine. I'm not saying that's wrong, and I and I definitely I definitely believe in strength training for athletes. Like you know, I I I hope that people don't get the impression I'm just like oh yeah, like well it's all about te- technique. So who cares? like no, but I do think having the perspective of someone who's been who's made it pretty far uh, with the athletic elements, I do think just having that perspective can give you a different perspective with what we do in the gym. So yeah, thoughts on bar speed. Sorry, long, long long-winded question, but what do you think there?
0: So I think I'll answer it in a different way. So like, depending on the stage of your development, you probably are going to care about like your vertical jump height, right? Where I am right now, I don't care about my vertical jump height. I want to be, I want to be a good dunk, right? Which is different than standing on a jump mat and jumping as high as you can, you know? So as far as, yeah, as far as metrics go metrics like vertical jump height or your broad jump or your back squat rump one rep max or your back squat, whatever load you can move at 0.7 meters per second, whatever it is. Those are all really good for some people, depending on the stage of their development. You know what I mean? And when you're working with a team, there's a wide range of athletes and where they are in their development. So how do I incorporate that perspective within a team? Like I work with basketball, which is 15 guys, wide variety of type of athletes that play basketball as far as their anatomy and, and what they what their athletic background is as far as training goes and what other sports they've played. But like there are certain kids you can look at and say, Well, if we get his his trap bar deadlift up from 315 to 405, that's probably gonna help him on the basketball court. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you look at some other kids and you wouldn't agree with that statement. You know what I mean? So like, I don't even know if I'm answering your question. Some, some metrics matter for some people, some metrics don't matter for some people. So if we go back to myself and my experience getting better at dunking, when I really first started trying to get better at dunking, I've always kind of had the ability when I was, cause I'm just generally pretty athletic, but I would, I would be able to dunk once every five attempts. Right. And so at first I was like, I should probably do more rate of force development mm-hmm, training where yep. I'm going to, I'm going to move the bar at a certain speed. I'm going to do more box jumps. I'm going to do more loaded jumps. I'm going to do more depth jumps. I'm going to do more X, Y, Z. Right. But that's, sh- that's where I'm on this. Sorry. Yeah. That that's, should, that's, been, that's, ha- that should didn't sad. help me dunk the basketball. better. the only thing that helped me dunk a basketball better was actually dunking multiple times for a week until I got better at dunking. So like, for me, the metrics didn't matter. I already had the general outputs and just like a lot of people. People that i work with some people that i don't work with a lot of people already have the general outputs that are required in order to dunk a basketball they just don't have the skill and you just gotta you gotta go do the skill so i don't yeah. know if that answered your question sorry
1: sure no it does make sense i mean maybe i could maybe i could sum it up in in the way that i see it in the sense that some athletes have it's almost like like the the, neur- the neurological strength of the organism like some athletes just have right. it and some don't and more than the skill of lifting a weight or the skill of expressing power in a specific power exercise in the weight room. We want, we want the skill of actually being in sport. We want change of direction. We want jumping, we want jumping off the run cuts and, you know, defensive maneuvers and offensive cuts and all these things. And, and obviously like linear speed, if I didn't mention that, uh, we, we, here's,
0: here's another way. Here's another way. I think that would kind of make it easy to consume it. I think it's a good idea to improve your ability to produce outputs. And once you reach a certain threshold of producing these outputs, then we just have to expand the context in which we can produce those outputs. That's like a pretty simple way of explaining it, I think.
1: Yeah. So you know? yeah. So let me ask you this, because I think I've seen this, this kind of flavor of things in your, your postings. I mean, isn't it this the most simple idea? So when Dan Bach was on the podcast, he was talking about how he improved his vertical jump just a massive amount. By basically just improving his squat and then practicing like lower and dunks all the time. And when you think about it, like, okay, well, what would make an athlete or individual need to do more than that? Like, like, why do you need to do all this stuff that's kind of, I don't know, in the middle, right? Like grabbing dumbbells and jumping or something. Like, <laughs> like I always feel like you, uh, Kristen Thibodeau talked about that a little bit when he was on last time is like, well, it, with a good athlete, at least someone who gets it and plays a lot, probably, and has good athletic ability, like they should be able to just on one end, build their battery on the other end, build their skill and, and integrate things and transfer things over. Whereas maybe it's the athletes who have a harder time with that motor learning process, for example might need more of the bridging type stuff. And I I don't think it's that black and white. I mean I I love a good French contrast circuit, you know. I think no matter who you are, those things can have great great benefits. But I guess what I my question for you is like like the middle stuff. Like it, uh, like in building the output, like you were saying. Like some athletes you can just tell they don't have that battery. They don't have that explosiveness. I see so do you feel like some of the the middle of the road power exercises are things that we would I would call them like generalized power, like bar speed, trap bar jumps, uh, you could say Olympic lifts, like all that kind of thing. I mean, do you feel like that plays an important role in that building of the battery for those athletes who are missing it? Or do you think that they can just do a basic strength program and just be fine?
0: Yeah. Well, okay. So, Dan Bach has talked about this before, like that the middle zone. Well, so, okay. So, power, right? It's just a physics equation of force times velocity. So if you want to improve your ability to produce power, you got to improve either your ability to produce force or you got to improve the velocity side of that equation. And that's not to say that you don't work within the middle at all. Because obviously like I I do loaded jumps, I kind of bash them a little bit. Well, I don't bash them a little bit. I bash like a lot of the rationalization behind them. But I think a lot of people who do lack the general outputs can get a lot of benefit from doing something like a loaded jump or staying in that middle That middle zone, no man's land type area, there is value to it. But I think the more developed you are, the less you need it. Yeah. Which I think was probably something that Dan Bach would agree with. I don't know. I guess I've never I've never talked to him before. But yeah, as you get more developed, you probably just want to stay strong, stay healthy, and get good at what you're what you want to get good at. And you don't need all of these like specialized methods. I guess nobody really needs. Yeah. you, You don't need to do anything, no matter who you are, but It becomes less important, I guess, as you develop more, you know?
1: I wanted to take a quick break from the show to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, simplyfaster.com. Simplyfaster.com is a fantastic coaching resource, not only on the level of their blog and all the information they put out, but also on the level of their online store. With the click of a button, you can see and purchase the technology that is utilized by so many of the world's great coaches. In simplyfaster.com's online store, You can have access to training technology such as blood flow restriction training, timing systems, including the free lap timing system, bar speed tracking devices, a variety of resistance training machines such as the K-Box and also Kaiser training units, which Kaiser training units being strongly recommended by sprint coach Randy Huntington, for example. You'll also get access to motorized sprint training units such as the 1080 sprint, force plates and much more. You could check that all out by heading to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I faster.com. Let's get back to the show. Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely see that. You know, it's an interesting thought on if someone doesn't have that battery, I mean, that's even defining that, right? Like, well, what's, you know, what right. is that like nervous system, like how fast you can press the space bar or something like, you know, like nervous system rated transmission. Like there could be a lot of things with in that element. And, it, you know, as I'm just kind of thinking out loud, I feel like, well, sometimes athletes who, and maybe this is a little bit more of a standing vertical jump thing, but it could work itself into like short acceleration. It could work itself into like a three-step takeoff, you know, those kind of maybe slower to middle speed type, type happenings. But we've talked about the, on this podcast about compression, like, you know, too much compression, not good. You know, lose, you lose degrees of freedom, you lose range of motion. That's where you start going downhill in your ability to express like explosive and and high velocity athletic uh, motions, that's like where maybe you have a better standing jump, but your running jump got worse. You overly overly compressed yourself, and you know it makes me think. I wonder a little bit if some of those uh, what I would just call them generalized power, like like let's just say jumping with dumbbells or something. Like mm-hmm. I feel like that's a very it is explosive, but it's also like a compressive explosive. It's like a bilateral compressive explosive. So it's going to give someone who maybe has no compression and no ability to put like force down into the ground and create internal rotation, it could maybe help them to do that if they were just horrible at it, you know? <laughs> and, and so, it's maybe they are doing it in squats and maybe they're doing it with some, some loaded jumps and things like that. But if you keep doing that stuff, uh, and even for me, like I did, I didn't, I've never really liked jump squat type things. Uh, I always preferred Olympic lifts and then plyometrics. But I did so many bilateral plyometrics with a ground contact time of between 0.2 and 0.3 which is it sounds somewhat fast, but it's really not, <laughs> and that just really wrecked my, a lot of the way that I ju- used to jump and run and sprint when I was younger, actually. And it doesn't seem like it would, but it definitely did not help. I remember when I first got the job at Cal, I was twenty nine, so your age, and we had this competition with the interns. Like it was three strength coaches against three interns, and it was like this vertical jump and lifting competition. And we we tested our like j- our jumps and maxes in the like, squat and Clean and vertical jump and one step vert and things and like the, the competition was to see who could improve their marks the most. And I remember I I, I really worked hard and I I improved quite a bit. Like I, I and my standing vertical was about as good as it had ever been. And then one day at the gym we rolled the ball out and went out to like dunk and I couldn't dunk. Like I couldn't I could not run and dunk the ball. And this is like and I used to high jump seven feet and get my elbow over the rim and like and here I am now with a great standing vert and you know and we had done a lot of power generalized power stuff a lot of bilateral like slower contact relatively speaking generalized and and i don't think i really sprinted at all in that time <laughs> and it was just blew my mind it was really depressing and i had to like work to get it back you know and and it still took me a long time to really figure out what happened in that so anyways sorry I, that was a little bit of a random thought process there but that always made me rethink and consider you know when we're talking about like that generalized power like the negative consequences if you go too far into it in, in neglecting. But again, like most athletes you come across, they're going to be playing their sport. They're jumping in right. have quick contact times all the time. That would just be an example of what happens when you ignore sport and, and don't do anything fast and just do a bunch of quote-unquote general power training and then your standing grip goes up but then your, all your reactive markers just crash downhill.
0: Yeah, well, so... Probably a few years ago, when like when the VBT stuff really became uh popular, I got really into it, and I kind of had this. I, I still don't really know the strong enough question and what what, what the right approach is to that. Sure. But I got really into like the VBT stuff, and I just experienced the same kind of thing you did. Like my standing vert was really good, but I wasn't. I wasn't playing a ton of sports as much at the time, so like my sport play was really bad. Um, like dunking a basketball was not very good at the time. So yeah, I know. I guess I don't have much to add. I've experienced that exact same thing um, that you just laid out.
1: Yeah, it does make sense though. You know, as you just said that, I, I think it's easy maybe for me uh, or even like someone in your shoes if you and I are not playing sports to do that and get a little jaded. You know what I'm saying? Like versus right says someone who's playing sports and and they come in and maybe they're just doing a couple sets of bar speed based stuff. You know, I mean that's a totally different ball game and. I think I need to. I I always need to take a look and be like, okay, like I need to not. I need to not have necessarily that approach to it, a hundred percent. But you also, it also makes you think about, well, what's a good off season though? Like, okay, let's say they're not playing their sport a whole lot, and I'm in charge for the off season. Like, what things am I going to try to bring up that I think will really transition them well into their their sport practice? Like, you wouldn't. I don't think it would be a good idea to necessarily bring their standing vert up and their reactivity a little bit down and then go into the season and then they're going to just even it out. I mean, I don't know, you can, maybe there's some benefit in that on a some level, but I don't know. I feel like I I feel like if they're going to need to be more reactive for their sport, why do I just want to improve their standing vert now and not I I don't know. I mean, not that it just happens yeah. like that, you know, but it at least makes you think a little bit different about How are you going to go about preparing them when, you know, when when you know a certain type of training or overdoing a certain type of generalized power training could lead to those results? For sure. Yeah. All right. So, in terms of like redundancy, I know you've posted something like this, but I mean, maybe we could just say like like small plyometric hops or extensive plyos or not wasting time. (laughs) Um, What are some things that you uh, see in the gym or points you see as time being wasted in the course of training?
0: Um, well, yeah, I think a lot of extensive plios are kind of a waste. Uh, I guess it depends on what sport you're working with, like basketball. I don't think they need to do like any at all extensive plios because that's essentially all basketball is. Um, it's a lot of just sub-maximal ground contacts up and down the court, sub-maximal cutting, sub-maximal jumping. Um, so that would be one example. What else is wasted time in the gym? Accessory work. I think a lot of, and obviously I'm biased because I see like. I see what goes on I'm in the college sector with a lot of division 1 athletes and what their training programs are. There's a lot of just time fillers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you have you have 45 to 75 minutes of kids in the gym. That's what you're given by the coach or the NCAA or whatever. So you got to fill that time. But like I'll see I'll see a training a training session look like a warm up whatever, it's a warm up and then like an Olympic lift and then a main strength movement and then a unilateral movement and then a posterior chain movement, and then a second unilateral movement, and then a second posterior chain, whatever it is, right? And by the time you, by the time their session is done, they've done like eight or nine exercises. And so the question, like the question I ask, is those accessory lifts that you're doing, are you training different muscles than what you just trained by back squatting? No, you're not. Is the stimulus more effective, or is the stimulus more potent than your sets of back squats that you just did? Probably not. And so, like, you ask these questions about what's the purpose of doing all these accessory movements. Now, if, you're, if your goal really is to like, maximize hypertrophy, or if your goal is to maximize work capacity or something like that, I can understand some of it, but I think a lot of that stuff is wasted time. Why are we doing four sets of six back squat, and then we're going to go on and do three sets of eight reverse lunge, and then three sets of eight RDL, and then three sets of eight step ups? You know what I mean? these secondary exercises, the stimulus isn't even close to what you just did back squatting. Yeah. You're just creating more fatigue and more fatigue and more fatigue that is going to inhibit their ability to perform whatever sport they're, they're playing. You know what I mean? Sorry, that was kind of a rant too, but I think that there's a lot of wasted time with accessory exercises. And now I can't speak on what people are doing when they're training recreationally. Um, so that's what a lot of my audiences is too, is a lot of people who are just you know, washed up meatheads. They used to play sports. Now they train because they like to train. So they probably don't do a lot of that. But in the college sector, there's a lot of just wasted time doing accessory lifts that I don't think provide much value at all. And it's not that the specific exercise doesn't provide much value, but you just did, you just did four sets of five at eighty percent on a back squat. That's probably the most potent stimulus you're going to give them for the day. You don't need to do. You don't need to go do reverse lunges and step ups and lateral lunges and all this stuff. You know. Yeah.
1: I couldn't agree more. <laughs>
0: I think a lot like, of it does become... But if, 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 you want to fill, if you want to fill that time in, why don't you just do more sets, more sets of back squat and give them more rest and encourage them to have high quality sets and reps for 40 minutes of back squatting. Let them play some sort of game in between sets to keep the energy high, to keep the sympathetic nervous system stimulated, to maybe develop some more fine motor skills if they're playing a game like tip or if they're playing like a basketball game or juggling mm-hmm. or something like that. And I think that would just work out a lot better. But obviously, in the college sector, you have to please a lot of people, as we talked about before we started recording. Probably wouldn't like seeing that in the gym, admins, coaches, and whatnot. But I think that would just work out better, something like that, instead of eight or nine exercises in a 60-minute session.
1: Yeah. It is It is very interesting with like what is expected of you and why this is... I. It is, and it is funny. It's like, okay, you're going to be in the gym for 60 minutes. Why do people choose that number? I don't know. You know, like it just works. It's an hour block. It's like school. You have, you have class for like about an hour. And so, well, let's lift for about an hour. And it's like, well, I'm the strength coach. So we should be lifting for all this time. (laughs) But, you know, the funny thing is, I actually remember I had an intern once at Cal who, I mean, I would not say this guy was the optimal intern at all. In fact, I doubt he's in strength and conditioning anymore. But he would, he would get all excited for like coaching the Olympic lifts if we were doing Olympic lifts or squats or whatever. Like he'd get excited to be on the floor. And then like as soon as those were done, he would just like sneak back to his seat and like sit on his phone. Like, is he just like, I mean, I, and again, like, yeah, that's not... If you want to get an internship in strength and conditioning, don't do that. Like you, you need to be present in the session. And if you're the coach, don't do that. You know, that's just not a good thing to do, period. But in the sense of like you think about the, the energy level of what's going on in the session, Yeah, there's like more energy. There's a lot of outputs for those main lifts. And then, yeah, the accessories, as far as the athletes are concerned, even they're not like really into them. They're just doing them because they have to. And it's, I think when you think about it as, you know, Austin Yoakum said this really well. And I, I think about this a lot in the sense of going like, and a lot of my sessions are like this in many ways. It's almost like you got, you got games, high intensity, high intention, you know, community, then you have the main lift, you know, the purposeful main lift. And then you have like a high rep challenge, like ISOs or like a thousand rep, you know, dumbbell catches or or something like that. So everything has in, has a meaning and intention. It's just a little bit different. You know, the, the games have a little bit different intention than the heavier lifting portion, which has a little bit different intention than like the very, very high rep things. But it's like, I think people, if you just pay attention to athletes, their intention, and I think so oftentimes we think, well, Man, these athletes aren't excited about this 60-minute lift. That's like, you know, 20 minutes of main lifting and then 40 minutes of accessories. Why aren't they excited about this? Why aren't they more bought in? Like <laughs> because a lot of it's boring and it's not like their sport, you know. It's and it's I mean, again, not that you shouldn't do something that's hard from time to time, but in my opinion that's what the isos are for. But yeah, I I agree. I think that the things that really cultivate intention are what we should craft sessions around. And I think sometimes there's just a really big disconnect with those things. And that's that's one of those like seeds of the session that comes before like even, you know, like Dan John has spoken about, you know, if you can tell you're throwing in 200 feet in the discus in high school, don't, you know, complain to me there's not like enough periodization or get into the periodization <laughs> elements. There's just basic things you need to be able to do as a human being first. And having intention in the session is is massive. So, yeah, I, I agree with the. Uh, that and yeah, i'd be curious any of your other thoughts as well on you know isometrics or other ways that you like if you have decreased the auxiliary component like what are you replacing if you're expected to have athletes for you know x amount of time
0: yeah it's so i have decreased a lot of that stuff and a lot of times so i'll give you like a general session the what i do with my basketball guys usually we'll do a warm-up and the warm-up is some sort of game that they choose to do Or it'll be like a follow the leader, like we'll set up the hurdles and someone has to do like these different types of jumps or tricks over a hurdle. And then everyone has to match them and it's like horse. So if you you screw it up, you get an H, screw it up again, you get an O, whatever, something like that. And that'll be anywhere from five minutes to maybe we stretched out to 20 minutes if they're really having fun with it. So we'll start off with something like that. Um, And then we'll do like our main lift, which a lot of times will be a squat or a deadlift, whatever it is. And I don't time the rest periods. I let them do whatever they want during their rest periods. If they want to just sit down and chill, they can do that. If they want to play some other little game, they can do that. If they want to play hacky sack. They can do that with each other and make it fun. But I don't care if that takes them 20 to 30 minutes to get through. If like, if I say I want five working sets of a trap bar, get that done. Um, and then really I have a plan for after that. Like I'll, I'll program a little bit more but sometimes we cut that out depending on the time. So if I only have 60 minutes and we're 48 minutes in and everyone just finished the trap bar, I'll probably just have them do one, maybe two of the accessory stuff. And I mean, depending on what we've done prior to the accessory stuff, um, it'll be like a Nordic hamstring curl or a GHR or like a Copenhagen adduction or some sort of isometric, something like that. So yeah, that's, that's what the sessions that I do. Look like so. It's never more than four exercises in a day, and I think it works out pretty well. I guess you'd have to ask them if they like Mm -hmm. it or not. But that's kind of the way I've evolved in the way I program for a lot of my teams,
1: my athletes. Yeah, Yeah, it reminds me a little bit too of. I mean, (laughs) speaking of Dan John, you know, I know his sessions when he was on. You know, just talking about like, look, it's it is the main lifts, and there's a lot of rest being taken between sets to make sure that you can you know be effective at those and. I think part of it too, is maybe like this thing, like we always want to see athletes like moving, you know, like they're always, and again, I I do think we want to really make use of our time in, in a gym setting, but it's almost like, yeah, it's like, there's value to, there's value to sitting there and resting too and waiting. It's just, I don't know. I guess maybe it's a little bit of a tricky landscape in some level, you know, based off. Yeah, I
0: really, I really let them do what they want when they rest. Some guys just want to sit there and hold a, uh, like a couch stretch for two minutes on each side. If that's what they want to do, that's that's fine with me because they like that's what they think they need. What I don't I don't really care. Um, but then the other thing too, as far as like laying out a training session, I was just down in Minneapolis this past weekend. And I was with Austin, and we were trying to decide what we were going to do, and we just came to the conclusion: let's do something athletic, then let's do something heavy, and then let's do something that sucks. So what we did, what we did, like in a circuit just,
1: or in a linear. No,
0: like you do something athletic first, do that for 20 to 30 minutes, whatever oh, I got it is. You. I got do you. something heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what we ended up doing is we played spike ball probably for 20 minutes or so. Then we ran 10-yard flies for like 15 to 20 minutes. And then we did trap bar deadlifts, And then we did as many reps as possible on the GHR. And that was it. And that was a really good dose of stimulus for us, a really good dose of stress. And I think a lot of people could, well, could organize a session like that and get a lot, of, get a lot out of it. Um, regardless if you're an athlete or, or you're not
1: yeah you know it, yeah it's it's almost like this addition by subtraction like if you told yeah if in like you know i don't even know what the educational you know process looks like for i guess getting into athletic performance these days but i mean i'm a big believer in general that just more i guess you could call like intuitive or artistic whatever the term is scenarios should be played out like for example you have three things you're going to do this training session maybe you're going to sprint you're going to do a hex bar deadlift. And you're going to do, you can pick an ISO and that's all you're going to do the whole time. (laughs) And you have to find a way to just use those three things to not overtrain, but to also get the maximal intention out of it. And you can get a great workout out of that stuff. It's like, I talk about this sometimes when I first trained with Tommy John, I think he gave me a warm up to do that took me like 50 minutes. And (laughs) it was like three-way, he said, all right, 100 three-way hip circles and then like 100... Like five minutes, a single leg RDL each side. And by the time I finished those, it'd already been like 25 minutes. But I'll tell you, like I was pretty, um, like in terms of intention and getting into focus and like somewhat of a flow state like that, that's way more intentional, just doing a few things and a lot of it than doing like 10 movement prep exercises and kind of like rotating right. a circuit or something like that. You really are drawing the athlete in. And I think you can do use more exercises, but it's just you have to know a way to really create an intention and a purpose and, and create an engagement that goes into it. And so I, I do think it'd be a good practice for coaches to be like, All right, for starters, you get three or four exercises and then, you know, see how that goes. And then maybe you can add like a couple in. I so Will, you had a something that you posted. I thought this was interesting, but ways ways that you find um are good for potentiation so you had posted something where you do like strongman work in the morning and then we're jumping later mm-hmm. i'm curious on your thoughts on on like really heavy like carries as a use of our potentiation tool what's your thoughts on that versus like i guess just like a squat or a deadlift or something like that and how do you integrate that type of work
0: yeah i've actually never thought about that like that binary sense i actually am thinking i know i'm not the only one who's who's like who talked about this before um but like I kind of question whether or not potentiation circuits or potentiation complexes provide much value in the acute sense. I don't know. Cause I'm, I think I've heard you talk about this before, but like your best, at least this is for me, my best dunks come after I've played like three games of pickup basketball. Yep. You know what I mean? There's, there's fatigue there. There's a lot of fatigue there. Uh, my heart rate is elevated. I'm breathing relatively I'm breathing, breathing pretty, pretty quickly. And then I'm sure like you've played around with French contrast, just like everybody else has. There's no way I'm jumping as high after I do like a French contrast than when I'm like in a flow state playing basketball and doing dunks. You yep. know what I mean? Yep, 100%. Um, it just, it just makes me question the acute response from doing a potentiation complex. Does it really do that much for you? And I'm sure it does for some people. But like, what really matters, like like you just talked about, is the intention and like being in that flow state, way more than like the textbook physiological response that you get from loading whatever eighty percent of your one rep max mm-hmm. and lifting it a few reps. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I do think there is some value, like potentiating yourself for twenty four or forty eight hours later, because I've definitely experienced that myself. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know if the acute response from a potentiation complex is super valuable, especially if, especially when you're working. Like for me, I work with college athletes. Like we've, like we've mentioned, uh, especially with those kids who don't care about lifting in the first place and don't put that much attention to it in the first place. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think I will spend on some level my life in sports and athletic performance trying to figure out all the ways that playing pickup basketball just helps you jump higher than pretty much anything else. Like I've I've tried to figure out so many different things that could like kind of replicate it. Like I remember I've come in from the track. I remember I did like a 200, a 150 or a 200 then walk back about like 75% of the 200, then a 150, then a 100, then a 50. So just a descending thing. Then I walked in the gym and just was like felt really good. Like kind of like basketball, but not quite. Like not quite, <laughs> you know. Um But I do think like doing French contrast circuits is interesting because it does like I bet you my standing vertical might be better doing those like in between sets. Like I do a set of French contrast, like a trap bar and then a like a a depth jump and then like a squat clean and a line hop or something or a band assisted. My standing vert might be better at the end of that, but my running definitely won't be close to what basketball is. Right. It's just something about that timing.
0: Yeah. I don't know what it is. But it's definitely something I've experienced. And I'm sure a lot of people have experienced that too.
1: Yeah. It's kind of like too, you know, isn't it? I think it's just, just so interesting how so many of the most, the best things that happen. There's like so many inventions happen by accident, right? Like in the world of like science and, and materials and physics and or maybe not physics. <laughs> you know, just like there's so many, there's been so many inventions throughout the course of history that have happened by accident. And I just think it's so interesting to observe in basketball. I mean, what's the best way to, to dunk? Yeah, you go play, do a few dunks, rest a little bit, go play another game, go do a few more dunks, you know, like, and just kind of keep doing that. Like, it's kind of the best. I, I, if you're you're looking at dunk skill and warming up and potentiating yourself and you don't have to, there's no special equipment required. There's no, you know, you didn't have to buy a training program. It's just, it's all built in the system. And I think that's present in other sports too. Like even change the direction, mixing change the direction and linear speed if you wanted to throw some linear sprints in and things like that. Do you have any ideas or thoughts on uh, potentiation for linear speed, by the way? I know you do a lot of like, you know, sprints, flying work. I mean, any thought on potentiating sprinting the way basketball helps you potentiate a jump?
0: No, I, I think like I would have the same perspective on it. Like I think my best fly 10s come after I've already done like 10, ten maximal <laughs> effort reps and then. Um, I just finally hit like a really good rep after on my 11th rep, you know what I mean? But I like, I have played around with, cause I have access to the equipment in space. I've played around with the lifting, depending on what, what, whatever it is, deadlifting, Olympic lifting, squatting, and then in between sets of those go to sprint. I feel fine, but I don't think I'm running faster. Um, I should actually, I should do a little experiment on myself and set up the gates one time and, and test that out. Um, but I think my, I'd have the same perspective on the sprinting side as I would on the jumping
1: side, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. The more I learn about like change of direction, the more it fascinates me too. Cause I I mean, basketball, like playing pickup basketball, like change of direction is something that I think it kind of goes to both. It could go to linear speed or acceleration in a way, and it could go to jumping and my own, the highest I ever got up in high school. Like I I touched like two or three inches above the glass on the top or not the the square, not the glass. (laughs) Like I'd be a superhuman then. (laughs) <laughs> at one, but t- two inches, three inches above the top of the square, like legitimately. I mean, I left my fingerprints up there and I made everybody in this, like in my physics class, like go look at it the next day. <laughs> and uh, it was, but that was right after, and we've been doing this for like two or three weeks, but just like hard change of direction, like court suicide stuff at the end of practices. And the coach is always getting me all fired up and having me race the point guard. And I think I've talked about this before, but like after one of those days, it was after the sprints, not before. And it was fairly hard. But I just was doing some jumps and I felt like I was launched out of a cannon. And the more I learn about change of direction too, you have an aside that, at least for me, that's the the outside foot is very expansive. It's a little bit more of a supinated. It's like a high speed, expansive, supinated leg. And then the inside leg is a lot more pronated. And that might switch, those legs could switch when you go and cut the other way. You know, maybe the other foot's on the outside line. But I've been thinking about that a lot lately. We We take for granted like... It's like we have to kind of make up all these like unique plyometrics that might get likes on social media. And if you just look at a really hard cut, like even um, I think a few people have talked about this on this show, like, yeah, maybe running a pro agility test isn't like it's not going to transfer directly to your sport because there's no perception, there's no reaction. But there's a lot of really cool abilities, uh, uh, athletic abilities that happen when you're doing that, that I think are underestimated in a training setting. So I know I've, um, one of the things I occasionally do is I, I, in my French contrasts for which they've gotten, I don't know, you could say weirder over the years, (laughs) but I'll put, I'll put like suicide sprints as the tail end of a French contrast for like jumping sometimes. And I think it's interesting. So anyways, I say, I'm always trying to figure out that, like, all right, what is it in pickup basketball? Like I want to figure out all the little nuances, you know, being around, you know, competition and teammates and having fun, I think is something that you, you have to have that too. I don't, I think if that's not there, you're never going to get it all either. Totally. Yeah. The com- community aspect is huge. Yeah. So, variability. Uh, you mentioned your warm-up, Will. And so, like, and I, I've seen these the, these videos, you're like, you know, you're doing like it rolls into jumps. And I, th- I just think that stuff is so cool because it's very much like, you know, like we talked about, like, compared to, I guess, like the more like, all right, we're going to measure your standing vert, your standing broad jump. Like, it's a little bit more diverse. It's fun. Tell me a little bit about how you approach like jump variability or sprint variability or any of those things in... Uh, the main part of your training, the warm ups or what whatever you're doing with that component.
0: Yeah, I mean it's just like playing games, you know. It's more fun. I think you get more I think it's a better training stimulus. It's gonna have a greater training effect than if you were to do this strict six sets of three box jumps, you know, and then it's it's just way more athletic. You have to get up as fast as you can. You have to jump over something like there's that feedback of jumping over a hurdle or you know you know it's a bad jump if you if you clip the hurdle and knock it over, you know, it's just it's just a better training stimulus than standing counter movement box jumps, you know, and it's more fun. So yeah, I guess there's not like a ton to say about it. But you are, like I said earlier, like you're getting the outputs, you're training the outputs, but then you're just expanding the context in which you can produce those outputs into. So that's really, that's really all it is. Yeah, there's not like some there's not like a huge explanation that I have for that. Sure. Um, it's more fun. It's a it's a better training stimulus and you're going to get more out of it, you know, like playing a game, like playing yeah. sports. There's a lot more stimuli that's coming into the body.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. So when you go through and yeah, exactly what you said. It's like, it's more like playing sports. Like that's where that that piece, at least somewhat of that piece of fun community, like trying something a little different or having it being more open-ended. Like how do you pr- like... Give me an example of what a, a, a variable like jump session would be like in warming up your group or, or if you're training or yeah, something like that, like okay. what would you do?
0: Yeah. So if I'm working with a group, usually I'll, I'll give them the goal, which would be like jump for height or jump for distance or jump with load, jump off one foot. And then they can kind of just throw whatever else they want into it. So if it's, if I want the group, I'm going to say we'll have 15 minutes and the goal is to jump for height. They can jump onto a box over a hurdle. They can try to slap. A certain height on the wall. And then it's really up to them as far as what other var- variables they want to throw into it. If they want to add a three-step approach, they can do that. If they want to do a roll into a jump, they can do that. If they want to jump um, reacting to someone snapping their fingers, they can do that. Um, and I really just let them decide. <laughs> Working with college basketball players though, you have to give them a lot of ideas. Cause there's a lot of like cool kid element in the room. Like no oh, yeah. one wants to be the one to engage, you know, stuff like that. So then you have to come up with things to do for them. Cause no one wants to be the one to like raise their hand and say, Hey, hey I have an idea. So that's really all it is. I'll say like 15 to 20 minutes, you're going to jump as high as you can. I don't care if it's multi-effort, single effort, uh, if it's onto a, onto a box over a hurdle, hitting a wall, holding a med ball, holding dumbbells, whatever it is. Um, we're just getting better at jumping and yeah. Go ahead and
1: do your thing. Yeah, that's I like that you brought that up. Like, there's like the cool kid thing because it's funny when you when you train youth athletes, you don't get that at all. Like, if if I'm like, all right, you know, let's uh, I'm working with young athletes, and I'm like, hey, we're gonna do an animal warm up, and someone pick an animal and show me what that animal looks like. Like, you get everyone raising their hand. Like, <laughs> it is kind of yeah. funny. Like, you get that i don't know you go through middle school and high school and you go through some awkward times and you don't want to you're you're kind of like afraid to do that it does it makes me wonder a little bit if those same people who might be fearful of that if there's like a link to like creativity on the field or the court or something like that i i know Mm -hmm. Michael leafles talked about that like your willingness to be creative in just or like just mirroring sport with your willingness to be creative and uh, have a little bit of an exploration in a gym setting yeah (laughs) Yeah. I, 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 just, I think it's, I think it's interesting to, yeah. I, I remember I used to, like, I used to warm up like tennis with just basic, like, uh, I took it from Michael Zweifel, just like basically like mirroring drills where you you have somebody go and they're doing cuts or jukes and the other person's following them. And like, that's an easy way to be place to be creative because only pretty much one person's watching you. But it was interesting even with that, like, I noticed there were some players who literally had like no jukes, like maybe they didn't grow up playing basketball. But then when they actually played tennis, they were very much in the same way. Very predictable, very mechanical. Like the coach would say these things. So, and then you could just see it in their, you know, their, the way that they did those warm up exercises. I was curious, you know, that's why I asked you if you're... Well,
0: yeah, that reminds that. me. Austin Yolcomb's talked about this a lot before. They go through all day, be here at this time, do, they hear from a coach, we're doing this mm-hmm. drill this way, this is your pivot foot, this, this is the hand you're going to initiate the dribble with. Go around this cone, that cone. Like they're told that they have to do things a certain way all the time, and I think when they come into the weight room, that's kind of what they expect, and almost in a way, that's what they want. So then, when they're given this opportunity to be autonomous and allow for some creativity to come out, they 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 just don't know what to do. And yeah, it's kind of interesting how that works.
1: Yeah, that is interesting. It, it reminds me of what Rafe Kelly was saying when he was on a few episodes ago, and that. I mean maybe not so much in college but as especially as athletes are growing up and they have you know I mean in college you have different coaches for like your, you have your head coach and position coach and all these things and but athletes have multiple coaches who all will have different levels of knowledge and ability in the world of motor learning <laughs> and you know hopefully you know as as the world of sport and learning gets more interconnected you know there there will be a more of a an increased ability uh, to guide athletes in the correct way and or a way that allows them to learn better and to learn themselves more and to be a greater part of it. But Rafe was saying that the one of the things a, you know, a strength coach and movement coach can offer is helping athletes learn how to learn. <laughs> and I do think like just you know maybe you're not necessarily like going through a motor learning lecture with them or something, but just by offering them the chance to be creative and just stressing that this is important. Like and you know being creative is an essential element to being an athlete that you know hopefully that would at least help them to maybe you know at least be able to take a break from like you said like kind of being yes. told to do everything here's what you're doing do it this way you know da, da, da. like but it's like you know if we can give athletes a situation in a gym setting where it's like no i want you to solve this problem and well tell me how that yeah. really felt you know that this is the thing.
0: task that you have to accomplish figure out a way to accomplish it and then once you accomplish it add something else to make it more challenging and accomplish it again and then once like they get into that mindset, it becomes a lot easier for them to include more variation and more variability that they're doing.
1: Yeah. It was funny. I, I with my, my son is three and we were playing like baseball in the front yard the other day. And I think I had like just it was a soft base, baseball or a wiffle ball. And he just had a stick. Like it was just a stick and he was swinging the stick at it. And then he figured out that the stick was too long and he just like broke a piece off. So it was shorter. I was like, this is problem solving. This is how you should be learning. You know, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. even at three, I was like, this is it right here. So. That's just my own little, <laughs> I don't know. I have a, I have a lot of, I don't know if you call them epiphanies, but just interesting thoughts mm-hmm. on how we learn skills and stuff. And yeah, the more, we, like you said, the more we can help athletes figure out how to solve something on their own. I think it would be so much, it would be fun to almost have like a, you know, it's like we have like exercise databases. If we had a database of like, Here's problems to let athletes solve and just let them go, you know, and see if they can do it and, you know, things, that, things to figure out. I mean, even just like getting over bo- a series of boxes or like parkour, maybe that's part of the reason like I think parkour is a nice donor sport too. You have to figure out there's a lot of problem solving or rock climbing or whatever. So, yeah, I definitely agree with you on that one. I think that's really cool. So, you mentioned loaded jumps. Uh, So, I just want to come back and quick clarification. What's your stance on the loaded jumps? Because you had said like you don't totally dismiss them. It's like where would you use them or what would like the loading be? What kind of athletes would you use that type of thing with? Before we go, just get back to your thoughts on that.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, there's a few different ways I can kind of think about those. So, one way is like loaded jumps. I don't like the rationalization of we're doing loaded jumps to improve insert, whatever, rate of force development or something like that. I don't like, because you can you can improve, increase rate of force development doing like millions of things, you know? So I don't like the, a lot of the rationalizations behind them. That's really my only issue with them. Um, the way I think about it is you're improving jumping competency. You're adding load to jumping. Jumping is good. Adding load to it's probably also good. Go ahead and do load of jumps. And it's like a very simplified way of thinking about it. And then the other thing I don't like and again, this kind of goes back to rationalizing what you're doing. I do, I do not like the comparison of loaded jumps and Olympic lifting. Yeah. Um, me neither. Because again, it's like, <laughs> me because it's like, well, you, anybody can find any study that's going to support Olympic lifting over loaded jumps, or anyone can find a, a study that's going to support loaded jumps over Olympic lifting. If you have a very shallow and narrow view of it in terms of rate of force development or peak force or Peak eccentric rate of force developed. Well, you know all these different variables that go into all these performances, but I, I I just don't like how people will compare loaded jumps to Olympic lifting because they're not comparable to me. Like Olympic lifting, you're interacting with an external body of yes, mass, yes, yes, in in in, a, in multiple ways. You're interacting uh, with an external body of mass as an opponent because you're trying to produce force to make it move, but then also in a way as a teammate because you want to interact with that external body of mass. That's going to be conducive to accomplishing the task of pulling the bar, dropping underneath it, having you catch the bar in the front rack position. There's just, there's just so, so much more to Olympic lifting than peak rate of force development. So I don't like that comparison. Um, I, could, I could go on a huge rant on Olympic lifting. and I mean, why am I a proponent of it? People will strawman me all the time and say, I'm like, I have this dogmatic view of Olympic lifting and I don't. I don't think everybody needs to do it. But yeah, I guess that's my little...
1: A little rant on well, a no, that's becomes. okay. I think actually, they're, good. they're keep,
0: good because they're good. You know yeah. what I mean. They're not good because you're improving rate of force development.
1: Yeah, no, yeah. You know, feel free to keep going on that because actually, that's something that a few people have talked about, and in, in the sense of uh, you know, Dan Clether was talking about Olympic lifting a little bit too, and the idea. I think he mentioned this, but basically, it's like yeah, you're throwing and catching a weight. It's the skill of throwing and catching a weight, and I think we actually try to we atomize it when we start bringing in rate of force development because it's just not like. I don't know. You're over categorizing things. Yeah, yes, in a exactly. way that,
0: that In a way that is not, uh, It's I guess, for lack of a better term, it's not appropriate, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, like, I, and I'm sure you've probably heard this too. And I hear this all the time is I hear like, yeah, it's like we try to atomize. We try to dissect things way too much when it comes to like jumping. It's always like, well, you need to improve your RFD. And I'm like, all right, well, if you improve your RFD <laughs> in jump squats... I could tell you from experience that unless you're like I mean like back to my you know example of you know when I trained too much like power quote unquote power bilateral power in the gym my standing vert went up but my running vert went down and there was plenty of I guess points of RFD <laughs> happening in the hurdle hops right. and depth jumps and all that stuff but it was just too much bilateral internal into directly into the ground force and it's not like there's a lot of ways to have good RFD. I don't know. It's almost like this like thing we want to quantify. <laughs> um, too. It's like we want to quantify things too much. And I hear people talk about jumping on that. I just think it's it's there's too much like like you're treating it like like everyone loves terms that could be considered more scientific if that makes sense. And again, I I think the process of the scientific method is amazing. But I think when things sound more scientific, we just go with them more. You know. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like. I, I don't know if that makes sense to you. But like if someone says RFD, it sounds like, oh, I'm in a lab and I'm like really figuring right. this out. And it's like, well, it might not be the same RFD as when you need to jump or even accelerate or all these things. That's it's there's nuance to that stuff. <laughs> Anyways, that's my thought on it.
0: Yeah. And then, no, I mean, I don't have much to elaborate on that. I think with like the Olympic lifts, people, people put it in this, like in this box of this is what we're going to do to train for power, Yeah. you know? And it's like, it's more than that, but like, just like loaded jumps. We're going to do this. Cause we want to train power where I think of it as we're doing loaded jumps because we want to improve our, our ability and our competency at jumping. And this is one way we can do that because jumping is a good skill to have pretty much regardless of what, of any sport that you play or any activity you participate in, you know? Uh, so yeah, that's, that's my thing. And then like, there's more with the Olympic lifts too. Like, sure. uh. Like like we said, we're you're interacting with an external body of mass in a much different way than you would if you're doing like a barbell jump squat because that the load is essentially just an extension of your body of mass at that point. If you just if if, if the load is on your back and it's going to stay on your back throughout the uh, the entirety of the exercise, and then yeah, where do I go with this? Like the thing with the Olympic list is you can tr- it trains you yes to be powerful but also to be powerful in a very precise manner Yeah, because you could be doing, uh, you could, let's just use clean. For an example, you could be doing a power clean or let's say a full clean. You're doing a full clean. So you're, you're catching the bar on the bottom of the squat. Well, you can't pull the bar too high. So you can't be too powerful yep. or the bar is going to hit you in the chin. Um, but you're also training to be powerful and to be athletic and to contract You're you're contracting and then relaxing and then contracting again as you, uh, anticipate catching the bar you know there's just more there's more things to olympic lifts that i think people forget about and then you get into to this dichotomy of well should we do loaded jumps or should we do olympic lifts it's like those things aren't comparable you
1: know yeah it is two different i things. mean i
0: could i could go on a, an hour long run i've made like a, a, a <laughs> ton of youtube videos on it which i don't i don't need to go through all of those things but they're just not comparable to me and yeah it, it kind of annoys me because here's the other thing i think obviously you've met people who are like ideologues ideologues pro olympic lifting and then there's ideologues who are anti olympic lifting and at at one point there may have been more ideologues who are pro olympic lifting but i think it's the pendulum has swung so far there's way more anti olympic lifting ideologues now um and so then that's maybe why people think that I'm a dogmatic Olympic lifting. <laughs> it's, just, yeah, Olympic it's just lifting to the left and the right.
1: Yeah. The one of the extremes has just moved so far now. If yes, you're, you're in the same place, yes. but now you're extreme.
0: <laughs> yeah. So yeah, like, exactly. because I, I, I see and hear so much of, we don't need to Olympic lift. And it's like, you don't need to do anything really, but then I'll make an argument in favor of Olympic lifting for insert any argument I have. Like we just kind of mentioned a few of them and then, yeah, people will straw man my position and, it it could, it bothers me, you know.
1: Yeah, nothing. Uh, yeah, like nothing is bad or good. It's just context, which is such a lame answer. But like, I mean, I I have it, yeah. The Olympic lifts are interesting. I mean, I think where I've gravitated. I you know, giving my two cents, I'd be curious what you think about this. Is and, and it's fun. The more I learn about biomechanics, and the more I learn about even like contact times, you know, rate of force. It's like I could do. I could do a power clean and make it like a power clean meaning I catch it above 90 degrees and, you bend, and I could make the lift, but I could make that lift and actually be spending too long in what I would call the impulse phase where I'm actually like that second pole where they kind of like that brush is happening. Like that could actually be slower than you think it is in the sense of maybe I'm internally rotating too long. Like it's actually, it's power, but it's very, it's very standing vertical oriented, but maybe it's more like hingey standing vertical oriented. And also, depending on, there's like confounding factors too. Like how can I open up my pelvic space and how can I get a good hinge where I have a good power transfer? Like someone who can hinge well and someone who can't hinge well are going to get two kind of different adaptations to that type of thing. And from like a dynamic, from stuff that's dynamic to stuff outside Olympic lifting, you know, the bar might get caught and clean. But anyways, where where I've kind of gone with it is I've definitely aired towards the side of just, I mean, I like Olympic lifts, but I, I find that once you get above 80%, it can be good for potentiation in some cases, in my opinion, but the compression that starts to happen there, it's like you, you start to have to ask yourself, would this 80% clean, just for the sake of skill, like you, know, you talked about weighted jumping and skill, I have to start asking myself, well, would this above 80% clean be better or would throwing like a 12 pound shot put backwards over my head as far as I can be better? You know what I'm saying? Or like a 10 pound medicine fall forward between my legs as far as I can better. Or, or even like sprinting, you know, a sled, like a loaded sled sprint 20 meters, like, would that be better? And so, I just have to start asking myself that once the weight gets to a certain point. But I find that I think Olympic lifts that are done well in the 60 to 80% range with some lo- with like a not terrible second pole and good intention. And if you have time to teach the athletes that you can use it with complexes too, with bounding and stuff. Like, I think there's a lot of good things, but I, I have gotten in trouble. I've seen athletes get in trouble when they just like press their sport is not Olympic lifting. And they're just pressing too hard to put that five pounds on each week. I just I've don't, been there, dude. I, yeah, yeah. I don't see... Th- yeah. There's not good adaptations that happen for athletics and, and the rate of force that we see and the type of force development we see in sprinting and jumping and change of direction and all that stuff. I just don't see that once that becomes the game. But a lot of those kind of cool, like fast gains, you know, like Boost X, years home base, you know, sets of five, 60, 80%. I'm like, you're doing it well. You get catch the second pole. Like, I think that's all right. You know? Yeah. It sounds like we're on the same page with that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't really have much more to elaborate on that. I, I'd agree with all that. Because yep. um, I've, definitely, I've definitely been the type of guy... Like, my best clean and jerk is 195 kg. Dang. Um, <laughs> and it's crazy. like, do, do I really want to push myself to get to 200? Like, 200 would be a really cool milestone to get. But I'm not going to do that because I just don't think that effort is worth the rewards, I guess. So, yeah. yeah, I've definitely been that guy pushing one or two kg on my clean and jerk or my snatch with no real results coming from it
1: yeah i've seen i've seen swim sprinters uh set national records when their clean was five kilos seven kilos worse than their lifetime best you know Mm -hmm. like it's just so you have to i think kind of lay off but then it does say well well, why'd you do it in the first like i think there's good benefits it's just you know anything you can get carried away with and anything might not be a good idea at some point in time if i have a group of like you know 40 kids and you no, know, it's just me or something. Yeah. And I'm going to teach them, you know, and we're just doing like, and I feel like a hang clean, it's almost, I'd ask, actually, I'd ask you this is, do you, would you say that the hang clean is the easiest like Olympic lift just to butcher, like and just do a terrible job on? You know what i Yeah. I'm saying?
0: I would agree with that. I, yeah. Dude, I would agree with that. And I would also say, which I don't know if people would agree or disagree with me on this. I think the hang snatch is probably the easiest one to learn. Yeah. And to do well. I guess maybe a jerk would be. But I think I try, to sneak, I try to teach snatch before clean for a variety of reasons. But I think snatching is easier than cleaning. But like when I talk to athletes and try to tell them why I think that, I think because a clean is just more popular in like the strength and conditioning realm, people are going to see on social media, whatever, they're going to see cleans more often than they're going to see snatches. So if they're going into learning Olympic lifts for the first time, um, they assume clean is, is easier than snatch, which I just don't think is true
1: yeah yeah oh, i could see that yeah. as well in the sense that I, I i remember when i was at wilmington college in ohio so i was there when i was between ages 25 and 29 and the football team there like they would their cleans this was like like they had self-organized the optimal way to hang clean max because that was like on their record board it was hang clean max and it was like guys would start with it at their knees with wraps and like like rock yeah. back and forth like three times and then just do this like crazy slam off their legs and splits catch you know and and they got it, right? But then they go jump 20 inches on the just jump. Mat. <laughs> yeah. That was, always, that was pretty funny times. Yeah. So, yeah, cool. Good stuff. Yeah. Uh, one other thing that I think is interesting too that I pay attention to this now a little bit is like you mentioned a full catch clean. When you do that full catch clean, it isn't quite the, the, like the force into the ground output to hit that pole. But in some ways, I feel like if you have to drop under it really fast, it almost makes the impulse of that little pull a little bit faster, if that makes sense. It's almost like a like if you're counting impulse frames, like that that yes. little quick hit. You know what I'm saying? It's almost in some ways I almost consider that more RFD if you're counting RFD. You know, it, you're actually more expanded with knees out a little bit versus the knees coming in to really put force down into the ground. It's just something I've seen over time. Like I- no,
0: totally, and kind of piggybacking off of that point like comparing loaded jumps and olympic lifts the reflexes are being trained much faster in olympic lifts than if you're going to do like repeated loaded jumps because as soon as you finish that second pull on the bar it's within milliseconds that you're yeah. catching that bar in a in a squat whereas if you're doing a loaded jump as soon as toes off the ground you have depending on how high you jump i guess you have until then to react and and go into your your next jump so um just another like point i i another thing with the comparison of loaded jumps and olympic lifts i don't like would be like the reflexes component of it so
1: yeah yeah i, yeah. Agree. I definitely agree with you there so cool well, yeah, i'm glad actually we got some time to expand on that last point because i think you know a lot of people talk about it. i think it's interesting to kind of get into the the finer points of it and it was great chatting with you and good kind of picking your brain on some of these uh different topics of athletic performance so thanks for being on the show today
0: yeah i appreciate it I had a great time
1: thanks for tuning into another episode it was great having you here and if you enjoyed the show you can help us out by leaving us a rating or a view on itunes spotify whatever you're listening to i totally appreciate it we'll see you all next
0: week